Well, I can tell you that as somebody who made it two years without getting COVID and has COVID currently, um, this episode 100% is brought to you by Pfizer. (laughs) (laughs) No, thanks. I'm a Moderna girl myself. Like not even to get political or anything. It's just like, I know it would be 10 times worse had I not gotten the shot, but I would not have been able to do this episode had it not been for that. Emily is very dedicated to this podcast that she's doing it while she has actively has COVID. (laughs) Welcome to Hysterical History, where we sit down, talk about our favorite stories, and of course, laugh. Your hosts are Whitley Trussler and Emily Gummery. All right, let's get this show started. I was telling Whitley before we started recording, uh, today is going to be a little short, um, but I found this really interesting, so I hope you all like it as much as I did when I started to do my stuff on it. Um, So our story today takes place in Belgium at the Gravenstein Castle, which was built in 1180. This castle was the home to the uh, Counts of Flanders until 1353 and then was repurposed into a court, prison, mint, like a mint that create like money, mm-hmm. um, and a cotton factory during the Industrial Revolution. Between 1893 and 1902, work was done to restore the castle which I love a good restoration project. So glad that they did that. Um, during the Ghent World uh, World Fair, not World War, World Fair of 1913, <laughs> the newly restored castle was seen as the centerpiece. Oh, cool. And currently, as of like today, 2022, it's currently a museum and major landmark in the city. So... This fortress is only occupied forcibly once, and that was on November 16th, 1949, and that's where our story is going to take place. Okay. I was wondering, I was like, is this going to be the whole story that it transitioned from five buildings? And then that's, <laughs> that's it. The end. Thank that's you Emily's for story. Two and a half minutes. <laughs> oh, I'm excited. Oh my God. We would lose followers. No one would want to listen if that was my whole story. They'd be like, damn, she sounds like she has COVID. And that was a short story. I fucking hate it here. <laughs> <laughs> so again, it's going to be short. Um, and just like last week, I found this on one of like history and memes or something on Instagram. Um, I just thought this was hilarious. And so then the more I looked into it, I was like, oh my God, this is even more hilarious than I thought it was going to be. So November 16th, 1949, 138 students, one of those being a girl. So did they go to Marietta college? (laughs) That's the whole (laughs) student population. Um, No, but they did go to university of Ghent. So 138 students, including one girl, which we can already tell this is going to be a shit show if a majority of these people are boys Um, from the University of Ghent held a protest over the increase in the price of beer. 
And they decided that taking over the castle would be the most helpful to their cause. Uh, I mean, that sounds about like what, 100 and 138, is that what it was? Like yeah, 137 boys uh, in college <laughs> would do. Yeah. I When I was reading this, I thought of the castle in Marietta and I was like, yeah, this sounds about right. Yep. So according to a translation from the University of Ghent's website, the following took place. Quote, the battlements are adorned with playful student slogans, while the police and fire brigade are treated to overripe fruit and smoke bombs. The student-like violence can only be contained with the greatest difficulty by the police, end quote. Like, they make it sound like this is the cutest thing that ever has happened. I know. I was going to say, what does student-like <laughs> violence mean? <laughs> Throwing smoke bombs and overripe fruit at the police. Like, that's what student-like violence is. So, firemen, to try to contain this situation sprayed the students with their hoses oh that just sounds like they're making it more fun yes um and not only were the students protesting the beer tax <laughs> but they were they had also decided that they were tired of the police wearing white helmets what <laughs> i swear to god no one knows why no like literally to this day no one knows why this was important but i can tell you the helmets would be replaced by a blue kepi and made them less distinguishable from postmen among others so like literally this worked they they then started wearing like blue helmets um I mean, do you, I guess, but like, just I'm like, sure it was just like a few men in the group are just like shooting the shit around a table, you know, like, you know, what would be like really stupid and funny. Like, let's also protest this like completely unrelated item that makes no sense at all. Well, yes, yes. Very stupid. But I also wonder if they're just like, uh, I wonder what else we could get them to do while we're overtaking this castle. Yeah, maybe it was actually just a, a social experiment and nobody knew that they were part of it. Yeah. Or like, like you know, it'd be funny to see if we could make the police do some shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's most definitely probably what happened. There. <laughs> so... The police and firemen charged the students, like charged at them to get mm -hmm. them to leave and all that stuff, not like charged them with a crime. Yeah. But if we're keeping score, the students won, which I feel like <laughs> we already knew. Um, public opinion, though, stir stood firm with the students and none of them were prosecuted. Like they broke into a castle and they just were like, ha ha, so funny. We love that for you. <laughs> <laughs> and to make it worse. So each year, this day is commemorated with a parade 
and someone wrote a song about it. So they like sing this song and do their parade every year. And the city of Ghent considers this the greatest student prank in its history. Just a little pranky prank, you know? What? <laughs> That's literally the whole story. I looked at uh, uh, like all kinds of websites and that was all I could find on it. Like nobody got in trouble. If you look, according to the quote, like if you go on their website, the school like sh- like advertises it. As like a, hey, come here, we're a fun place. (laughs) Like, and the city loves it. They have a parade and they think it's like a cute little pranky prank. Like, I I don't get it. That would uh, not happen in the US, I can tell you that. No, they'd like ban all the fraternities and sororities or something stupid. (laughs) (laughs) They would be everyone's ass for just thinking about it, let alone if we did it. You'd have to attend like a seven day workshop on why it was wrong and why we're not doing that again. Yeah. And then like President Rude would just stand at you and look disappointed. That would hurt me the most, I think. (laughs) (laughs) The disappointment. He's such a sweet man. I don't think I could ever have him look at me like that. But yeah, that's uh, the 1949 Belgian student uprising over beer. Which is... (laughs) Do, do we know the outcome of the beer tax or did they only no. win on the helmet front? I literally, like I said, I couldn't find anything else. Like I Googled and Googled and Googled and I could not find anything. It's so, okay. We were all here. I hope they the got story. the beer tax lowered because if they did it and all they did was end up changing the color of helmets, I would be really annoyed if I were them. Yeah. They still won something though, even if it was yeah. only minor. But, like, you don't have to pay for the color of the helmets. You have to pay for the beer, though. You know what I mean? That's true. At least they could get beer at their age. I mean, legally, we can't get beer at that age. That's true. I was... uh, That doesn't mean we weren't getting beer at that age. I was not a very interesting college student, so I did not get beer (laughs) underage. (laughs) No, but you made up for it on your 21st birthday. Okay, we don't need to talk about that. All right. I wasn't, wasn't going to say anything else about that, but now I'm sure you made the people curious. Well, they'll just have to leave in the comments if they want to know the 21st birthday Whitley story. <laughs> Please say you guys want to want you know, because I would love to tell this story. We'll have a whole episode just dedicated to it. Yeah. Yeah. We can make <laughs> it a YouTube, a YouTube series or not series, but a youtube episode so that way we can put like uh pictures in the background so that way people know what we're talking about yeah we'll have to dig up some pictures of jimbos oh what a time i still can't believe what they did to that place it It, looks nice but it's not what but also you can't unsee the bar like what it used to be because they left that DJ, that really terrible DJ booth in the back right corner. Well, I've only seen pictures because when Nihilus and I went down there, it wasn't open during the time that we were there. Okay. Well, it's, I didn't see it with my own eyeballs, but I can picture it from the photos I've seen online. Yeah. They left that DJ booth up there 
But anyways, enough about the DJ booth at Jimbo's. Which we'd also tell you about if you leave a, a comment down below. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know All who right. was running it on my 21st birthday, but there are multiple people up there and I'm sure I pointed at them on several occasions you pointed at everybody i sure Maggie did and i were very afraid of getting into a fight because you were pointing at strangers so wow that wow that would have been a really crazy birthday story if there was a fight involved but yeah especially if it was just well why'd you get into a fight well because whitley decided she was going to point at random people at the bar <laughs> instead of her getting her ass beat i had to beat someone else yeah that would be a great <laughs> story i'd have to tell but anywho <laughs> anyway anywho's it's your story so i've got a fun story well i don't know if you oh. want to maybe surprising story is the better better way to say it so i'm gonna tell the story of a soldier from finland in 1944 who survived separated from his units for weeks inside the Arctic Circle without food or shelter. And this oh. soldier's name is Imo Koivinen. Okay. So it gets really crazy and interesting, so you're going to want to buckle up for this ride. Um, oh, let me put my seatbelt on. <laughs> but I, I was researching this, and... I kept trying to like write the story in my own way and I haven't, I don't think we've done this before on the podcast, but I just thought it would be better to hear this story from the person who lived it. So I found a copy of their memoir that was translated and it tells the story in more detail. So I was just going to read that story and we can all take a trip um, with Emo Koivinen through this journey in the arctic circle uh where he was all alone yeah let's do it i guess the first thing i want to start off with is just a quick note about finland's involvement in world war ii because i didn't really know much about finland um and how they related to the war so apparently they had this whole other thing separate from world war ii with Stalin. So they had basically been at war with the Soviet Union since 1939, just independently of the World War. Oh, really? Yes. Huh. There was a dispute over locations that were part of the Russian Empire from 1809 to 1917, which is a long time. Why does Russia feel like it owns everything? So annoying. (laughs) I mean, look at it. It's huge. They kind of do. Um, (laughs) but essentially they gained independence this area along the coast or not the coast but the border of finland and the soviet union gained independence in 1917 and stalin was like well i want it back so that's what this war between finland and the soviet union was starting conveniently at the same time as the second world war so this is it's referred to as the winter war and that is why this soldier, Imo Koivinen, was involved at all with the Soviets. Because when I first started reading about it, I thought he was getting chased by Nazis. But they were actually working with the Nazis to invade the Soviet Union so Finland could keep their land. 
So Finland was an Axis power? Technically, but not really, because they were only fighting on the border of Finland with Nazi troops. So it was kind of like the Nazis got the benefit of having extra troops along the Eastern Front that they wouldn't have had. Okay. So yes, so they're they still were... working with Nazi Germany, but they're not fighting elsewhere in the war on behalf so of Nazi Germany. So they're fighting on the Eastern Front, like between, like on Russia's border, not on Fin. They're not in fin like Finnish territory. Like are finished like in Finland. So Sorry. no, they were fighting. No, you're fine. They were fighting on the border of Finland and the Soviet Union. I think I need to pull the map. It's helpful. Because Finland is north. And it shares its whole eastern border basically with the Soviet well, Russia today, but why did I always imagine like Norway, Sweden, and Finland so far away from? <laughs> no, like, they're definitely connected. Like Denmark is attached to Germany. In like, okay, which you're, you're like, I'm not saying you're wrong, but like in my head, it's always been like, the three of them like up here and Just then all the by rest, themselves like, yes <laughs> and i don't know why because like i've seen maps before yeah so the soviet union was fighting with finland before they even got involved in world war ii over this territory between finland and russia and that's basically why this finnish soldier is even involved in this long story not long story but the story i'm going to tell you about this is why he's even in this situation um, okay but i just thought that was helpful context because i never think of finland as being involved in world war ii and i was like who is this guy running from so i just feel like if this were a movie this would be the part where it would like record scratch and then we would zoom in on his face and he'd be like I know you're all wondering how I got myself here. And then it's like, blah, 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 and it rewinds. Oh, this is definitely that kind of a story. Uh, yeah. Because this is a, this is going to be a wild ride for, for us all here. Well, I've um, been buckled up the whole time. I know. My seatbelt is still on. Good. Even though we took that wild detour to figure out the geography <laughs> of the world. So it's fine. So again, I'm going to be reading a translated version of, um, Emo's memoir, who was a soldier, um, that this story is about. So I just, I, I was, I kept trying to rewrite it over and over and I just couldn't do it justice. So, um, I think this is just the best way to tell the story and I hope everybody, um, enjoys it as much as I did reading it, but. I'm sure we'll love it. Let's hear it. Here it goes. Here I write about my long range patrol, which I conducted in the winter of 1944 to the territory of Kantalati. It was during this time when the Russians were operating encirclement activities in this sector. The headquarters had somehow obtained intel that the enemy had something strange going on north of the railroad coming from Kantalati. I was in the 4th Company of Headquarters Ranger Battalion, which was assigned to patrol this northeasternmost area. 
The headquarters gave orders to Captain Patsalo to send our boys to see what was going on there. If I recall correctly, I had joined the Section Patsalo already in the summer of 1942, and thus I had already taken part in many kinds of expeditions. I considered myself a kind of decent cross-country skier, which was the main reason I was allowed to be part of this long-range scout group, and we had been training especially for this winter. So quick sidebar, this whole troop navigates on skis, so they're ski patrol with guns, basically. I would literally shoot my own leg off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Not so they're just dramatic, but uh, God bless them because I would kill myself. It'd be quite a workout. They're skiing literally everywhere. So back to the story. So I had been on a scout patrol about a week ago, and I intended to go for a vacation when Lieutenant Nori asked if I was interested in joining them. A feisty expedition was to be expected. It was the first Ooh. time Nori asked me to join his group, and as the boys had told me good things about him, I accepted and left my vacation for another time. Big mistake, buddy. Oh my god. No, this is a PSA real quick, so sorry. Do not ever cancel your vacation for anything. Thank you. Have a nice day. We had skied nonstop for over two days, only took short breaks, when we were about to reach our destination. It was the 18th of March, 1944, about 10 o'clock in the morning. The day was sunny and about negative 15 degrees Celsius. So that's about five degrees, give or take Fahrenheit. So it's cold. Mm. We arrived at the tree line of Keita Fjeld. And a fjeld, just for more context, is a high rocky plateau in the Scandinavian nations. Um, okay. A spectacular view opened in front of us, about two kilometers of treeless hillside. I always enjoyed being in the fjelds, probably because I came from the flatlands of southwestern Finland. Lieutenant Nori halted the skiing for a while, gave us a status update and orders. Their group will stay in the cover of the forest with the lead of 2nd Lieutenant Reitkonen. In the cover of the spruces, a small fire can be set for tea making. They would go and help the Valakongas to scout the area from the top of the fjeld, as there is a road nearby. And then he told them, if you have to make a hasty retreat, we will rendezvous at the western part of Kaita Fjeld. And the next waypoint is western part of the Kotamo Fjeld, where Lieutenant Ilmari Hankanen is located with his patrol. So essentially that whole paragraph was like, hey, we're going this way to scout. You guys stay here covered in the forest. If you have to retreat, this is where we're going to meet up. Thank you for that recap. Yeah. It's a little weird because it switched tenses <laughs> yeah, and people. All the people. So Lieutenant Nori went and ascended towards the top of the fjeld. The road was intact, found about three kilometers away from the summit. I set a small fire with the guys and put some snow in my cooking pot. I was worried about this expedition. And the last evening when we had crossed the enemy ski track and skied for a while, we heard a shot. And when we were ascending on this field, an airplane flew over this. I was sure that we would have to leave soon. As I was adding wood to the fire and snow to the pot, I decided it would be wise to apply some grease on my skis. Just as the tea started to boil, my hunch came true. Two of our watchmen, about 400 meters on the way we came, opened fire. Soon the enemy responded, and as they were using explosive rounds, it felt like they were everywhere. The hastiest of us started to flee towards the west, and I too thought it would be our only way to rescue ourselves, as the way was still open. I went to take a look on the open hillside, hoping to see Nori and the boys. 
Instead, there was a full platoon of snow-suited skiers sliding down the hill. The Ivans, aka the, the Soviet Union, was there. Dun, dun, dun. They, dun, dun, dun. they were still too far for me to start shooting. I returned to the outskirts of the plane and urged a radio man to come along with me. Now there was even more crowd as another platoon was skiing to our flank, 200 to 300 meters west of us. Their obvious aim was to encircle us. So wait, I'm sorry. How many people do they have right now? Like four? That I don't know how many were in the troop. Or you just like only named like four. Yeah, I only named the people in charge. Oh, okay. So they so the, most likely have more than that. Yes. I, I don't know how so. many, but we go into how he eventually loses his whole band, his whole crew. Gotcha. Uh, gotcha. Okay. <clears throat> but there are two now, two platoons of Soviet, Soviet. Union soldiers. And then they have one platoon of we don't know how many. Yes. Okay. But this, they're also split up right now. Because so one. Like yes. Hmm. Okay. And then the first platoon that was skiing towards us was now about 150 meters away. So we opened fire. It sure did calm down the situation. I don't know. (laughs) That's what it says. I don't know if I hit anyone, but there was no one coming anymore. And we didn't plan to wait and see. The guys shouted to retreat, and some hasty ones were shouting that we are already circled by the enemy. I recall that we fought for about 10 minutes at that camp. After that, we retreated and shot while skiing. But as we were advancing in a line, the Ruskies dared to come close as 20 meters from us. I had ski track mines in my bag, and Wright Conan gave orders to set them. I asked the boys to cover me and shoot accurately so that I would have an opportunity to set mines, but to no avail. I had to ski forward to catch up to a boy with a rifle. I took aim and shot empty the whole magazine, and the situation finally quieted down for a bit. The second platoon in the fjeld was skiing towards us but never came close. We had traveled a couple hundred meters from this camp. We were shooting back and forth, but none of us was hit. If only we could manage to slip out before they encircle us. Right, Conan still ordered me to set mines up on the track. I said a few, but noticed the Ivans would only go around them, so I started to ski forward and suggested that we just pick up the pace. There was no other option. However, the boys considered when the snow was knee-deep, no one could open up a new track any faster, and thus a couple men should slow the enemy down. I may have become slightly angry then and stated there was at least a platoon of enemies on our tail. A couple men won't stop them. (laughs) Go in front then, said some boy to me. (laughs) <laughs> i went that's motivated nihilist when he gets slippy yeah i feel like that's you to anybody <laughs> that's fair that's fair. the dude hey don't be sassy to me and if you have a better idea go ahead especially when someone's shooting yeah i went motivated to open up some serious ski track and we picked up speed after skiing in front for some time i started to notice i was getting shaky and felt weak Shooting still continued behind me, and the boys demanded me to pick up speed. I did all I could. It was already afternoon, and we had not eaten at the camp. We had battled for a couple of hours, and the only food I had that day was a small, crisp bread sandwich in the morning. Oh my god, no wonder he's about to die, and he's shaking. He needs well, to eat. The guy didn't have his tea. Well, he doesn't eat or drink, but this is where it gets interesting. Oh boy. I possessed all the pervitin assigned to our group. 
At first, I thought about taking one pill, but as I was against the whole substance, I decided not to take it. Wait, take what was it? Pervitin. What is that? It is amphetamines. Oh, Jesus, God. Yeah, okay. <laughs> let's take that. Let's take that, but especially let's take that on an empty stomach. Are you dumb? So he had enough of this pill for the whole group. So just keep that in mind. Wait, is, so is it... Oh, so he took enough pills, not like it's one big gigantic pill, right? So he hasn't taken taken them yet, but this is just noting that he has all of the amphetamines for the entire group that he's with. So just... This is how drug problems start. Well, this is how his problem starts. Idiots. Right here. Well, it actually started when he decided to skip his vacation, but we'll just, we'll just let that slide. <laughs> That's uh, yes, that's that's 100% accurate. So I'll probably do another story, maybe the follow up episode on what Pervitin is and how it was used throughout the war, because I, I learned that basically everybody was just on amphetamines during the war. It sounds like when Coca-Cola was putting cocaine and Coke and they were trying to sell it as medicine. Everybody yeah. was just on drugs forever yes i think you're correct <laughs> like it's not a war on drugs it's drugs are on a war with us because we keep trying to say that we don't need drugs <laughs> exactly but we've always been on them yeah so he has all the pervitin assigned to the group now going back to reading as if i were him however i felt ever weaker and couldn't keep up the pace i felt faint some boy was already yelling at me Imo, don't sleep. Now the decision was made. The pills were still in the front pocket of my jacket. I tried to pick one out, but because of the clumsy winter mittens, there were plenty of pills on my hand. Without slowing down, I ate them all. I tried to do <gasps> oh it unnoticed by others. Now other sources I read stated that he had 30 plus pills of amphetamine in one go. he took all of them? All of them at once he's going to die but guess what i didn't ski long before i felt like a new man oh, it felt Jesus. like i was skiing the first kilometers we progressed hastily and the poison had done its job then something unexpected happened the surroundings started to change form and i noticed i was losing consciousness my last reasonable thought was that i had made my first and perhaps last mistake Afterwards, I was told that I had become dangerously disorganized and the boys had taken the clips off my submachine gun. I have no, recolle no recollection of this phase of the journey. You know how high you have to be for people to be like, you know what? Maybe these guns aren't safe with you anymore. Yes, during a war where you're <laughs> yeah, being actively like, chased by Russians. And they're actively giving you the amphetamines. Yes. <clears throat> like, sir, <laughs> sir. <laughs> The next reasonable remembrance was this. I am staying still on my skis at the border of Finland. At some point I had departed from the boys, or was it the other way around? I never really found out. It looks like it is morning, but I am not sure what day it is, the 19th or the 20th or some other day. All I know is that the distance to the Kaita Fjeld from where we retreated on the 18th day is over 100 kilometers away on the map. I try to get my head straight on the situation and questions dart around my brain. I decided to stay cool and strengthen up by eating. It had helped me before. 
I took off my skis and sat on them. I took my backpack and submachine gun off my back. Have I dropped my clip? The gun clip that they took from him. So be it. <laughs> I won't think about that now. Food is more important. Just open the bag of food. The bag was empty. No so food. So they stole his food too? Yep. No oh, food. Oh, they thought he was dying no for ammo. sure. <laughs> they thought he was a goner. They said, <laughs> I can tell him right now. He doesn't know. They left him. They took his food. They took his ammo. They said, you are too much of a wild card. You're on your own, buddy. 100%. That's what they did. So, yeah, he's in this predicament. Like, he's in this predicament now where he doesn't have any supplies. He's in the middle of the Arctic Circle by himself on skis, high on amphetamines. You don't trust anybody. So now it gets a little more fun. I start skiing down the slope of a fjeld, and I regain consciousness. I had fallen down quite badly and there was no one around. I get up and look around, but there are some fires over there after all. I pick up some snow and press my eyes with it. It's probably the Krauts escorting us. I feel good. It is like I'm already home. Oh. It was a good downhill ski on, and I was going down almost full speed. My eyes started to water, be it tears of joy or whatever, it hindered my sight. Oh, now I start to see a bit clear. Yes, it must be the Krauts, as there are so many of them. There, I will ski right through the middle of them. I, I started to slow Wait. down a little as I made a gruesome discovery. It is the Ruskies. Yeah, yeah, buddy. Full speed through the camp. There's no possibility to turn around. <laughs> Men are so dumb. <laughs> Go through the Russian boys. I was such a surprise that they didn't know what to do. They sure yelled loudly, but I got the impression they were forbidden to shoot as I only heard a couple maximum five shots fired. What a situation. The ones in the middle of the camp, the ones I mistook as Krauts, were laying in a lean-to shelter without snowsuits, and when I skied by, they would only move their curvy winter boots a little to the side. Out of my way. They must have been the same group that chased us on the road. Most likely, they drove away the men of Lieutenant Hunkanen and the rest. <laughs> I wonder if they will chase me, as I am such bad condition. I have to keep my head straight now. First of all, I must only ski in open areas so that the snow supports my skis. Only them am I on equal terms with them. Over there on the right is a large swamp. Let's ski on that. Okay, Shrek. <laughs> Although it goes a little bit too far to the right to the north, who cares? Now the main thing is not to get caught as a prisoner, if they even try to catch me in the first place. I have now skied for at least 8 kilometers, and there's about 2 kilometers of treeless swamp left. Once I get there, to the cover of some bushes, I will check if they followed me. I didn't have to keep looking for long, before I saw a group of snowsuited men skiing on the swamp. I realized immediately from their pace that I got some renowned Red Army partisans after me. They were approaching. At times, the distance between us was less than 100 meters. We were ascending fjelds and skiing them down. I managed to gain some distance crossing the fjelds, but it was very dangerous. If I had made a mistake and fallen down, they would for sure catch me. Now there was yet another high fjeld in front, perhaps the Karhu fjeld. Before it, there was a forest area where the skis sunk and I was slower. While I was ascending the fjeld, the distance between us had reduced. The partisans were some 20 meters behind, and can I, I could not get further away no matter how I tried. Once I reached the summit, I got away about 100 meters from them again. 
it began to snow spiky ice crystals and it was difficult to keep my eyes open. There was light snowing when we reached the ascent of the fjeld and now it became heavier. The snow fell so hard that I couldn't see more than a couple meters away. I checked my compass and my aim was towards the north. Little by little, I made a full turn and started going north. It was a terrible weather to ski in. The wind blew so hard that it felt like I had no clothes on at all, but I had to keep on going forward. I skied for an hour in this storm. The fjeld just did not end and it was getting dark. I think I was stumbling down the hill all night as in the morning I had the whole great fjeld behind me. If it was the Karhu Fjeld, it was over 500 meters high. And he's going to, what, go up it? He did. He went up and down it overnight on skis. <laughs> so now we're, now we're getting to the point where he has lost the Red Army that was chasing him. Because they're probably um, like, this guy's dumb as hell. I'm turning around. <laughs> exactly. I skied for the whole day and night. The next morning, skiing down a small slope, I came across a small dwelling. I thought I was dreaming again. I was dead tired and half conscious. It turned out to be some remote company-owned lodge. The doors were open and I went inside. I found wood in the corner and set fire to the floor in the middle of the room. I was that disordered. I found a tin can. can hold on, hold on. <laughs> Rewind. He did exactly what you're about to ask. He set a fire. So did he catch the whole place on fire? How do you put a fire in the middle of a room and not catch the whole place on fire? So I'll just continue reading here to answer your question. Oh my God. <laughs> Gradually, the fire grew larger on the floor and I moved aside along it. Soon the whole cabin was on fire and I was just moving <laughs> little by little further from the fire. I couldn't get any sleep. Finally, the cabin collapsed. When it burned down completely, I went to the sauna next door and set a fire in its furnace. I burned a couple sets of wood and probably sobered up a little as I realized to question how I didn't burn myself alive yet. You don't say. <laughs> oh, my God. I think I rested for one full day. Back to skiing. At first, it went effortlessly, but when it came dark, I went completely crazy again. I guess I saw Pole Star. But I thought it was a light coming from a cottage and kept going towards it. I tried to reach the star all night. In the morning, I found a ski track. And since I felt the track was going in the right direction, I followed it. At this stage, I noticed my fingers were solid hard, completely frozen. I managed to thaw them out by rubbing them with snow. Then I saw barbed wire obstacles and dugouts. It must have been a German post guard. Oh my dear, how good I felt. I only needed to go on for a short distance. There was a wide plowed road in front with about five centimeters of fresh snow on top of it. I tried to shout out to the Germans, but no one responded. I took off my skis. It sure felt nice to walk for a change. There was a small piece of barbed wire fence as a gate. Just open the gate, I said out loud. I had learned to speak to myself along the journey. I had taken about 10, 20 steps when a mine set off right under my foot. Luckily, I fell down away from the road, which was also mined, waist deep in the snow. I had Did come he blow his leg off? <laughs> We're getting there. I'm sorry. What the hell is this story? <laughs> I had come across a mined fortification abandoned by the Germans. So it's just a German fortification. There are mines completely surrounding it. He stepped so, on one. I, I hate it here. 
Why would, uh, you know what? I, I have learned to not ask questions about the Germans during <laughs> this. Uh, well, apparently they were all on methamphetamine. So, you know what? I, 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 I don't, I don't even know what to say. I was telling Maggie about like this story as I was researching it. And I was like, this really like makes World War II make a lot more sense that everybody was just strung out on meth. <laughs> meth and um, mental health issues. Yes. That they tried to help with meth. So yeah, it all makes sense. A hundred percent. It's, it really puts it into clear view for you. God, what freaking idiots. <laughs> I began to inspect my foot. It looked extremely nasty. Bones were pointing out in different directions and muscles looked like they were graded. I blamed myself for being reckless, but I made a decision to crawl to the nearest dugout since the weather felt feisty and I feared freezing to death. The dugout was about a hundred meters away. I don't know how long it took to crawl before I was at the front door. The door opened from the right and I had a ski pole in my left hand. I fiercely pulled the door open with my right hand. After it had opened about 10 centimeters, a huge flash followed. The brightness was beyond description. The whole world seemed to shatter. So they put a mine in... Oh my god. So this guy steps on a mine, says, oh my god, I'm done for, and then crawls across the minefield to open a dugout. <laughs> and gets mined again. Another mine explodes in his face. This guy's an idiot. <laughs> he really is, because I feel like the first... The first Aside from him skipping vacation, the first, like, well, second, because he took like 30 things of meth, but the the very first problem and decision he made was off the bat, one, what believing 100% that a group of people he sees from far away are his people. Sir, you're in war. <laughs> Everybody is the enemy until you know otherwise. And he skied right through their camp. And you just said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ski right to them. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> That's the time you should take your skis off and tiptoe your way over there to see if those are the people you need or not. Oh, my God. So, yes. To this point, yes, Emo has been chased by the Russians, lost his whole platoon, took 30 pills of amphetamine, skied through a Russian camp right through the middle of it, who then chased him again, found a cabin, burned it down, <laughs> found a dugout left by the Germans, stepped on a mine, blew up his leg, crawled across the minefield, opened a door, and blew his face off. Not really. He still has his face. But this is the journey so far of this, this guy. Like, this sounds like if you and I got drafted. <laughs> oh, 100%. <laughs> so here we are after the second explosion i woke up and found myself about 30 meters away from the dugout meters deep in the snow i still had the ski pole in my left hand and in my right hand i had the door handle attached to one door panel on the side of me there was an empty sugar sack what I can't tell how long I remained unconscious. I began to assess the situation. My eyes hurt, especially the left one. I felt a strange rustle in my head. The back of my pants were missing and only some strips were left of my left shoe. I, I ripped. I feel bad for laughing. I feel bad for laughing. Like 
if I wasn't already going to hell, it would be this right here. <laughs> but like, what is happening to this poor man? <laughs> Not good things. So I ripped the front side of my undershirt and banded my foot. On top, I put my right sock. My travel was at its end. The only option was to make waiting as bearable as possible. I made a fire between my knees, a small kind of fire. I carved small splinters off a detached panel and took some snow from the hole I was in. Otherwise, the whole surrounding was stained with gravel and dirt. Later, the Germans told me there was a 13.4 kilogram charge within the dugout. So the one he like opened and it exploded. The German said, man, glad you made it. We set that to blow everybody up. Yeah. Couldn't even get one. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good example of why they lost. <laughs> yes. I melted some snow in my can and cursed myself. How stupid I had been. Now there was no chance. Here laid Amo, feast to crows. There wasn't even the slightest of hope. And so did the Finnish long range ranger cry. Cried so loud that an echo from the fjelds responded, but it helped. It broke some barrier that was built within me. Slowly, I got my water to boil. It was some good water. I doubt water has never tasted this good. A Siberian jay flew by to have a look and wonder. They say that the Siberian jay is the holy bird of Lapland, which is the area in Finland. Mm. Others say it's a good friend. I felt cold sitting on the ground, so I put the rest of the wooden panels under me. I ripped open the sugar sack and used it as a blanket. I fell asleep immediately. It became dark. I woke up many times during the night and every time I got food in the dreams. It felt ever more like torture to wake up and realize that I am still in the same trench. The night was long. Finally, it became bright, but it didn't help me much. I was so weak that I couldn't keep my eyes open. I lost track of days and nights. I only dreamed of being taken away from this disgusting hole and served food. Suddenly, there was a shot and another. I picked up a German landmine I found. I was determined that the Ruskies won't take me alive. It's like, what's he going to do? Throw it at them? <laughs> that was what I thought when I was reading. I was like, oh no, another mine. Oh God, put it down. <laughs> Bring a sledge, someone shouted. That's Finnish, I stated. Who's there? Come help me. We can't do anything for you, replied the Finnish boys of the patrol who had just hit the minefield like myself. Our sergeant stepped into a mine and we will transport him first. I tried to explain that I'm about to die, and they have to help me first. When we reach our group, we will send someone back to pick you up straight away, the boys replied, and went away with their sledge. Everything crumbled once again. I wonder will they even tell anyone, or will they just leave me to die here to spare their efforts? Or did they even exist? Maybe it was just a dream. <laughs> That's awesome. Th that could be. <laughs> it could be. Now I was certain I was going to die. I laid low in the trench and tried to pray. I blessed myself just like my mother taught me when I was young. Days and nights went unknowingly and I didn't care. I slept and woke to incredible hunger. At some point I felt slightly better and could sit up in my hole. In this position I could see around a little. A Siberian jay had flown next to me again, about a meter away. I reached for the ski pole as carefully as I could, lifted centimeter by centimeter, fearing every second the bird would fly away. Then I hit with the last powers of my miserable being, and there lay the jay, the holy bird of Lapland. A miracle has happened. I picked the bird up with my ski pole, pulled off most of the feathers, and started to eat. I couldn't believe I was able to eat it raw, but it was tasty. I was even surprised how tasty it was. 
So he ate, he ate a bird that he was just talking about was like a holy bird. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, this guy has survived so far on a broth made of pine needles and a Siberian J and meth. Can't forget the meth. The meth, let's be honest. The meth is what's gotten him this far. It really is. Then the sound of an airplane. Take off the sack quickly. I put on my fur hat on the top of my ski pole and tried to move it around. The pilot saw me, jolted the aircraft, which I identified as a German reconnaissance plane. It started to circle above me, made a turn, and flew towards an airstrip. Afterwards, I heard that the plane was ordered by Lieutenant Nori, who managed to get home after many blurry events, who noticed that I was missing. After quite a while, I was wakened once more by a loud noise made by Finnish soldiers. I shrieked at the top of my lungs. Who's there? Don't move anywhere. We will come pick you up right after the German pioneers have cleared the mines. You're right in the middle of a minefield. A Finnish patrol you had come after say. all. <laughs> yeah, he only like blew himself up twice. He said, huh, wonder how I got here. A minefield, you say? <laughs> Jesus. About an hour later, they came up to my hole and asked me to stand up. I couldn't, so they had to pick up my miserable body and put me to a sledge. They weren't short of wonder. How long have you been in the hole? For a week at least. He's out of his mind. But I had no energy to reply. After a short while, I noticed I was in a horse pull sledge on my way to the hospital. I blacked out and can't remember anything about the rest of that journey. Now here's the conclusion. At two in the morning, I had reached a field hospital. Afterwards, I marked down the following facts based on official reports and my own recollection. Oh boy. The place where I was laying in a hole covered by the sack was about 50 kilometers north of Sala. We departed from Kaitafjeld at midday of 18th of March. I arrived at the Sala Field Hospital at 2 a.m. on the 1st of April. My journey took two weeks. Oh my god. Arriving at the hospital, my heart rate was still 200 beats per minute and I weighed 43 kilograms, which is around 95 pounds. So over the last week, when I lay wounded in the trench, the air temperature at Sala was measured between minus 30 and minus 30 Celsius degrees, which is around negative 30 is around negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit. The distance I skied from the Kaitafjeld to the abandoned German field post was about 400 kilometers, which is around, so basically over two weeks he skied 250 miles, got blown up by two mines, burned a cabin down, skied through a swamp, skied through a camp of Russians. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few.